Listener warning. This episode contains descriptions of graphic events and adult content. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all of the difference in our health, happiness, and success. In this episode, we interview Holly K. Dunn, the only known survivor of the railroad serial killer. Holly is the author of the book, Soul Survivor, and is the co-founder of Holly's House, a child and adult advocacy center for victims of intimate crimes. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Hope you guys are having a great day. I have an awesome guest for you today. Her name is Holly K. Dunn, and she has an amazing story. I want to give her a floor and uh, the space to tell her story without me kind of (laughs) blabbering too much into it. But in 1997, Holly, you had a moment where you were walking with your boyfriend and in one instant, your entire life changed. Can you tell, welcome to the show, first of all. Hey, you know, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. But but I can, I can, I can tell you, I can talk about kind of what I went through. Um, I was a student at the University of Kentucky. I was a junior and I had just met this great guy over the summer that um, we had just started dating. It was a really new relationship and he had asked me to go to a party with him. And so I was super excited to like go to a party with him and thought, you know, oh, I really like this guy. Right. Um, And so I went to a fraternity party with him and then it was boring. So we went and took a walk by the tracks and this was really close to campus. It was a house that was just off campus. Um, and we went and took a walk by the tracks. Um, my boyfriend had actually lived in that house before, so he knew that the tracks were nearby. He had walked by, you know, at them before. So he, um, him, him, um, and myself and two of our friends, um, two guys that were his fraternity brothers actually went to take a walk by the tracks. And my idea was we were going to go take a walk by the tracks and put quarters down on the tracks Mm -hmm. to have them be flattened by the train. That was something I had done as a child that I thought, you know, this is, that would be something at least more fun than this party. (laughs) So, um, that was the plan. And we went down to the tracks and, you know, we put some coins on the track and we waited because that's what you got to do. Right. And we waited and waited. I don't think we waited that long, but it was probably about 30 minutes or so and no trains came by. So it was like, okay, this is more boring than the party. And so I guess um, Chris was my boyfriend and I guess we were being kind of lovey dovey. And so um, our two, his two fraternity brothers were like, uh, we're getting out of here. You guys are, (laughs) you know, you need some alone time. So um, they left and they went back to the party and Chris and I just sat down by the tracks and we we started talking. Um, and we actually shared a beard together and just sat there and talked and that, you know, that was it. And so we got, when we got up to leave, um, we started walking back toward the party and a man approached us from behind an electrical box. And it kind of seemed, it seems now thinking about it, it, it was, it was strange, uh-huh. but we saw homeless people in Lexington a lot. There were, there were kind of, you know, there were transient people in Lexington a lot to work with the horses and work in tobacco fields. And I mean, it just, it was something that we were very familiar with seeing. So, but of course this was really late at night. It was really dark. 
And so this person approaches us. I didn't see automatically that he had a weapon of some kind, but Chris did. Mm -hmm. And so um, he had that weapon on Chris and he asked us for money. And we thought, okay, well, we don't have any money. We're poor college kids. And um, he didn't believe us. So he made Chris get down because Chris was six, five and this person was shorter than me. So, I mean, he, and I'm five, eight. Mm-hmm. So, um, he made Chris get down so he could go through his backpack and he looked through his backpack. Um, and he didn't find anything that he wanted, I guess. And, you know, we started offering him our car, our credit cards, ATM cards. And what kind of um, weapon did he have? You know, I'm or not, it, just, he was wielding something you could see. Yes. It, it was in the shape of like, it looked like a screwdriver or an uh-huh. ice pick. It was okay. sharp, like a, some kind of, you know, like a, a, a stick of some kind that was a sharp okay. object. So okay. I'd, I'd say the closest thing would be like an, a, a screwdriver or an ice pick. Not that it matters. I just was wondering, <laughs> go on. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, and so we actually offered him car credit cards, ATM cards. He didn't want anything we offered him. Um, and what that seems strange. Cause you know, I always, I learned growing up, I felt like that you give anybody that's that wants something from you, you know, that's going to hurt you, you give them what they want and they leave you alone. Right. So if he was wanting money, that's, I was like, well, I'll go get him money in the ATM. I'll get him as much as he wants. Like if he wants money, that's what I'll get him. So he won't hurt us. You know that. And that was my thought process. Um, but nothing, he didn't want anything to do with that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that I think seemed strange. But I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't comprehending what exactly was, was happening at this point. Right. Um, and so he actually had, since he had made Chris get down to go through his backpack, he started tying up Chris's hands behind his back with his backpack. Um, and he tied up my hands behind my back with my belt. He took off my belt. Um, and at this point I had realized that he had some kind of weapon Um, and he did kept, kept referring to a gun that he had. Um, I never saw a gun, but he kept referring to it. And I think that that was more of an intimidation method. I don't think he necessarily had one. I think he was just trying to scare us. Right. Um, and so, you know, at this point we're, we're kneeled down with our hands tied behind our back. We're like up, like on right beside the track. Um, and he actually took Chris by his shirt and pulled him into the grass that was like beside the tracks. And so I saw how much this hurt. Cause I mean, it, it's rock, jagged rocks and the railroad tracks right. that he was, you know, dragging Chris over. And so I just kind of followed on my knees and followed to where the grass beside the tracks. Um, and I don't know how much time passed, but, uh, you know, some amount of time passed. Time really stood still during this whole thing. Um, I was, I believe it was somewhere around midnight that we started to go back to the party. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it was, you know, the middle of the night. Um, but I, I really don't even know how long he stayed there with us. He was telling us crazy stuff. He was, so it was you a know, while, I, like you were sitting there tied up and he's talking. Right. I mean, he was talking about how he just broke out of jail, how he had a friend with him that was going to get some food. 
Um, so it at just, this point, uh, yeah. are you like, did you, dude, do you just want to talk? Like, cause he yeah. didn't want your, yeah. So that's crazy. Pretty much like it, but you know, with him tying us up, I knew he, he was, I, I, I don't think anything was crossing my mind yet. Right. What exactly he wanted to do. Um, because it, he wasn't in any way showing, I mean, you could tell that he was agitated, but he wasn't in any way showing that he was going to, you know, hurt us that what it didn't seem like, there, you know, there, it, he was angry, but it didn't, you know, that wasn't crossing our minds. Mm-hmm. Um, so he actually, um, went, he kept going back up to the tracks and I, you know, we thought he has a, must have a bag that's up at the tracks. Uh, and so he was going to a bag and kept go, getting stuff in a bag and coming back. So he went and got a shirt that he, that it was like a white, some kind of white shirt and he started ripping it into pieces and he actually put that shirt on our mouths as a gag. Oh, no. So he, he gagged, um, Chris first and then he gagged me. Um, when he gagged us, I actually stuck my tongue out, which it seems really strange to me now because I had never been gagged before. So I don't mm-hmm. know what made me do this, but I stuck my tongue out so that he couldn't tie it really tightly. Uh-huh. And then it just, it would fall off and I could still talk. Okay. Um, it, it just made sense to me that I got to create as much room in this gag right. to, to be able to, you know, have like a, to be able to, that, that it wouldn't be able to be tied tight. Yeah. I got to try to keep space in here. Um, and so I, and I, I did that. He tied, retied it several times because he couldn't understand why it wasn't working. <laughs> um, but then some time went by and he actually went and got, um, and by this time we were laying at the tracks face down. We were laying down because he had tied up our legs too. Um, so he took pieces of that, what that shirt that he ripped and he tied up our legs too. So we were basically tied with our hands behind our back and our gagged and our feet were tied. Um, and he actually, and he went and got like a rock. And I didn't know what this was because it was dark. First of all, we were, there was a GE plant on one side of the tracks. And then on the other side were people's backyards, but they were long backyards. They were Mm -hmm. shotgun houses and really long backyards. So the houses were still several hundred feet away. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there wasn't, there wasn't anything, you know, in that vicinity, the GE plant was lit up, but very dimly. And so it, and it was really dark this night. So So you weren't like, even before you got gagged, you weren't in screaming distance from anything. No, I mean, and no, and no one, no there. I mean that that's, and I think that was, I think it was almost a, an opportunity that he kind of, that our attacker kind of knew that and Mm -hmm. saw that. So that's, and you know, he, he even asked us why our friends had, had got, had left us to see if they would come back. Right. And he, so he had evidently been watching us and he didn't approach us until we were two. He approached us when, you know, when, when we had, when we were, or he approached us when we were two, not when we were four. Right. So he knew that there were four of us at one point. And you were there a while because you said you were having conversations with Chris for quite some time before this happened. Right. Okay. Um, and I kept talking to Chris because Chris and I were trying to, decide how we were going to get away. Cause we were, our plan was to run. Like right. if I could get untied, cause I got my hands untied. I was trying to get my feet untied. I got Chris's gag off. Um, and I started talk. we started talking and like every time he would go back up to the tracks for any amount of time, I would talk to him and I'd say, you know, what, 
what do you want to, what do you want to do? What do you, what do you, do you want to try? I'll try to run. I'll try to get my legs untied. And, you know, I, Chris just kept saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. He was very calm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, but I just, I like, I kept getting frustrated cause I couldn't get my legs untied. Right. Um, and at one point he came, our attacker came over with some kind of rock. Um, it was a 52 pound rock. I found out later and he hit Chris on the top of his head with it. Um, I like replayed it in my mind. I, I thought he had hit him several times, but he only hit him once. Um, he, it, it kind of came out of nowhere. Like he hadn't really been, except for tying us up, he hadn't been and pulling Chris, he hadn't been violent yet. Right. Um, so it, it, kind of became surreal. Um, and that's, that's really how I can describe it is that I didn't even really, I mean, I knew it was bad, but I, it it like became surreal. I, I kind of, I think I went into survival mode at that point. Right. And, um, I, I actually like, he, he put the rock down and he came over to me and he climbed on top of me. And that's when I realized he was going to rape me. I hadn't realized until that moment that that he, that that was even crossing his mind that he wanted to do that. Wow. So I decided that I was going to fight him at this point. Like I was, you know, I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to fight him. Um, and so I started kicking him and, you know, as much as I could, my legs were tied together, but I started, you know, kneeing him and, mm-hmm. and hitting him with my hands. Cause I'd gotten those untied. Um, I was trying to bite him. Um, and he stabbed me in my neck with that ice pick or whatever it was. And, um, he stabbed me in, in, it, I don't know how far it went in, but I did have a, I had a wound from it. So, um, he did go into my neck, but he said, look how easily I could kill you. And wow. so, he, and I, I just stopped. Um, at that point I heard noises coming from Chris and it was kind of a gurgling sound. Oh and gosh. I asked my attacker to go turn Chris's head to the side. Uh, I said, you know, if, um, I don't want him to choke on his own blood, go turn his head to the side. And so he actually went and did it and he came back to me and he said, he's gone. Don't worry about him. Oh my gosh. Um, and so then he raped me and I actually, I had the feeling of basically floating above my body while he was raping me. Although I was doing things to try to, I was afraid he was going to take me away from there. I was doing things to try to, so that people would know I had been there. So I was trying to rip off my fingernails and leave them at the, I was trying to dig my hands into the dirt. Um, and, but I, and I was talking to him. I was literally trying to get him to realize that I was a person. Um, and so that he wouldn't hurt me. And I really thought that I had convinced him not to hurt me because I had talked to him so much. Right. Um, and when he was finished, he, I actually asked him to put my pants back on because I thought, well, if he's going to kill me, I don't want to be found here naked. Um, and so he actually did it like, and, and I was worried because he got kind of frustrated because my underwear were like tangled up in my pants. Oh and I was gosh. like, don't worry about it. Cause I didn't want him to get frustrated. You know, I didn't want him get, right. to get upset. Um, but he still, he, he pulled, you know, he figured it out and he put my pants back on for me, which I thought was interesting. Um, and and so he put my pants back on for me. And then he, t- I remember him taking one of my rings and one of my earrings. And I do not remember being hit. Um, I actually got to the hospital and believed that it couldn't have been him that hit me because I believed that I had become his friend and that he would not have hit me. So um, in the moment where he took your jewelry, 
that was the last thing you remember, really? Before? That's the last thing. That's the last thing I remember. And how, like, how much time passed between him yeah. taking the jewelry and hitting you? Was it just seconds, or like when he I took your know. jewelry? Jewelry? Were you like, this is something extremely weird at that point, or? Well, you know, the first, the next thing I remember is actually um, there being like like him leaving and trying to kind of cover me up with the grass and stuff that was around. So, I mean, I remember him trying to like cover me up and I just remember the only thing I remember thinking is, uh, you left me here alive. Like I'm going to get you like, I, you know, I, I will get you. Cause I was staring at him the entire time he was raping me. And I was, I was literally looking at every tattoo he had, every scar he had. I was getting the details of his face. And I just thought, if you leave me here, I'm going to get you. Um, and, but I, I, and I really, I, I don't, I mean, I do not remember it. I don't know how much time passed before right. he hit me. I think he started hitting me right after he took my jewelry. And when you and say I think, hit you, was it with his fist or did he have an, the rock again? Was it? No, he did not have the rock. Um, he had, it was like some kind of board. Cause oh. I had wood marks on my face. I don't, I don't know where he got it from. We never found what he hit me with. Okay. Um, but it was some kind of board. Uh, so he hit me five or six times in my face. And then I think I put my hand up to block it. Cause my hand was swollen. Like he had actually hit my hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he hit me five or six times in the back of my head. So I think he was hitting me in my face and then I turned over and he started mm-hmm. hitting me in the back of my head. Um, and I think he hit me enough that he thought he had killed me. I mean, I think I, I was, you know, not, not We're moving out. and, and passed out basically enough that he thought he had killed me. So you woke up um, in the hospital and that was your first memory. Well, no, I mean, I, w- I remember him trying to cover me up so I, at that point I had probably been hit oh, and okay. I, I, okay. I kind of remember playing dead. I remember like trying to not breathe as he was close to me. So he would think I was dead. Um, and then I don't remember getting up to get help, but I remember appearing in somebody's front yard. So I walked several hundred feet barefoot because <laughs> my shoes had fallen off mm-hmm. to a house nearby and I didn't knock on the door. I just walked into somebody's house. Um, and cause the door was open and that's uh-huh. the light was on. And I, I was looking for a door that was open and the light was on. Although I do not remember walking there. All I remember is opening the door to get help. Wow. And, and so, so they called 911 for me. Do you remember the person there? Do you remember any of that? I do. Yeah. And they, um, and, and I mean, he, it was a student at the university of Kentucky and he was, had just gotten off of work. And he was, you know, caught, he, he was basically, he called 911 for me and uh-huh. he took care of me till the, till the ambulance got there. And I mean, evidently it was a big deal. I don't remember much about the ambulance ride. I do remember a little bit. I even still keep in touch with the guy who was in the ambulance with me. Uh-huh. Um, the, he, the, the EMT that was in the ambulance with me. Um, I, I don't remember much about the ride. Um, I just, I just I do remember a little bit about the hospital, you know, there's just, mm-hmm. there's bits and pieces that I remember, but not, you know, it's just not all together. Right. <laughs> it's very right. hazy. Well, I remember reading something where you said that you went back to school or work very quickly and you just picked up your life and you, you missed Chris's funeral, obviously. And I then, did. Cause I was in the hospital. Um, it was about, I've, sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. It was about five days after five days later. So but you just like pretended it didn't happen and tried to pick up your life and move on. And that worked for a little bit. And then what, about a year later? 
Yeah. Right, right around the year anniversary. Um, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I was, I think I was kind of pretending. I think that my, that's what I had to do though. Right. I mean, I think I was protecting myself. Right. Um, and getting back to school was just something normal that I knew and that I had control over. And I didn't want to stay locked in my room with my parents overseeing me, you know, like I had already <laughs> sensed freedom. I didn't, I didn't want to be put like locked up. Yeah. So and I actually watch and look over you and, and just stare at you all the time to make sure you're okay. Right. Right. So that's, I think why I went back to school and it was right around the year anniversary that I really had not dealt with at all being raped. I had dealt with Chris dying. I dealt with myself almost dying. I felt pretty strong, but then I started falling apart again and I was like, what is wrong with me? And I realized that I had never dealt with being raped. And Uh so I had to deal with that. (laughs) It was like, I had so many things that I had to deal with. I could only do one at a time. That's an interesting thought. Uh, That's, that's really interesting. I talk to people all the time about like, I quit drinking about a year and a half ago. And when I talk to people, I say, you know, focus on quitting drinking right now because they're like, all I want to do is eat ice cream and I'm going to get really, really, really fat if I continue. And I'm like, you can only fix one thing at a time, like kick the booze habit first and then worry about your weight later. Is is that like kind of how it was with, with your process? You, you kind yes, of and I think, you know, step? I truly. I think our minds do that. Like, I think that's how our minds can like handle stuff is like, okay, you're trying to do this, do it and do it well, and then move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, that, that was exactly, and, and I kind of felt that that's how I needed to do it. It, it was like an instinct that, that helped me to know, okay, you know, you, 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 you don't want to deal with this right now, but you're going to have to at some point. So when did you start telling your story? Um, it was a, it was soon after that one year anniversary. I actually, um, so I, I went to a support group to deal with being raped and, you know, six weeks later I'm, I'm better. Uh, but truly that's how it was. I just needed to talk about it. Uh I just needed to feel validated. I needed to feel like I wasn't going crazy. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I felt a lot better after I went to that support group. Uh Um, and so I, I actually, um, what kind of support group was it? Is it like a national type or was no, it, like- it, w- it was a local one. It was in, it was with the rape crisis center in okay. Lexington. Um, and so I had joined just a, a support group through that. And, okay. and I mean, that's that I did not want to go to therapy for me. Therapy was like boring. I would, I, you know, I didn't want to have to deal with stuff when I just had a therapy appointment. I liked being forced to talk about stuff at a support group. I mm-hmm. felt like I was being held accountable by other people. Okay. And so that, that really helped me. Um, you know, and everybody is so different when, when, and anybody that goes through any kind of trauma or needs, you know, therapy needs help from talking about probably all of us need to talk about things in our lives and we'll all be better people. But, you know, when you go through any kind of trauma and you need to talk about it, 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 you know, some people really like therapy and it works for them. Mm -hmm. Some people really like support groups and it works for them. Some people really like to just talk to their sister and it works for them, like whatever, whoever you need to talk to. But I think we all need to talk. That's that's what I tell everyone is that you just need to talk about it. And sometimes it's not talking. Sometimes it's writing, right? Sometimes it's singing. Sometimes it's poetry. Sometimes it's however you get out what you want to get out. That's, that is therapeutic and that is healing. I always say you got to get the monkeys out of your head somewhere, you know, they got to get down on paper or someone's got to hear them. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And 
I totally agree with that. That, that, that I really believe that, you know, I had an amazing support system. My healing started happening because of my support system. Um, I never was questioned whether, you know, what was I wearing that night? What, um, what, what, you know, why were you out so late at night? That kind those kinds of questions that often get asked mm-hmm. of rape victims, you know, that are shaming and blaming and guilt driven questions that they get asked. I never got asked any of those questions because I was so badly beaten and so badly physically hurt that everybody's like, well, they're, you know, you don't want to hurt her more. Like, let's not, we're not going to put that stuff on her. We're not going to ask her those questions. Right. So, um, but I, I was very lucky that I wasn't asked those questions and, and I think my healing, but my healing was, and still is to this day is amazing because of my support system, because I had such an, I had, you know, not just strangers praying for me and thinking about me and, and wanting me to do well, but my, my friends that still support me to this day, I have Chris's friends that are all some of my best friends, um, that we get together as much as we can. I, you know, I just, I have an amazing support system and, and it still exists to this day. And because you had that support system, that drove you to share your story and to focus on, um, you know, helping victims. And and you said somewhere that with every victim that you helped, you regained a piece of yourself. Right. And, and that's, I love that, that is, that is so true because I, you know, I started speaking just because someone asked me to, to talk at the University of Kentucky. They said, um, we've got a bunch, we've got 700 girls going through recruitment at the University of Kentucky and we'd like you to talk to them about safety. And oh. I was, I almost laughed. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I, I do not know it. The first thing about safety, I obviously do, I'm, I do everything wrong. So I I was like, you want me to tell them the wrong story and then they'll learn from it? You know, I don't, I didn't understand why they wanted me. But then as I started to think about it, I was like, well, if I tell them my story, at least they become more aware that these kinds of things can happen and that there's life after it does and that you can live through it. I was like, so maybe if I tell them my story, they're going to be more, they're going to be safe because they're more aware that things like this can happen. Well, not even that, Um, just when you were talking about the ex- the experience and what you went through. I mean, just the gag situation, like I said, and that you were tearing off fingernails and, le- you know, that's valuable information. I mean, well, and I got, practical. I got asked cause I, you know, I, I did talk to a lot of even the FBI during the, the whole process because it became such a big deal. But like I had an FBI guy ask me once, he was like, uh, did you have some, um, some hostage training? And I was like, yeah, no. Um, I was a college kid. Like, no, no hostage training. But so evidently there is some kind of hostage training and and maybe those are some things that are taught. I don't know. He was like, do you work for the CIA? And we don't yeah. know it. He was like, you're not telling us something. That's, I mean, kudos to you though. Now, like with your, and I don't want to get go too long into this, but like with your family growing up, were you, was, did you come from a family that like taught you to be a tough girl? Was this just in your nature? Do you not view it as a tough girl? And it's, survival instinct? Like, where did it come from? Um, I do believe it came from my family. Uh-huh. Um, my family's been through a lot and I, I think it's especially my father, I think I've seen him be, he's gone through a lot in his life and has always persevered and always mm-hmm. just had a positive attitude and been amazing. I think I did learn it from him. I 
think that I was sort of a tomboy. I was kind of a tough girl. Um, I loved sports. I, you know, I, I was always very outgoing. I was, I wanted people to laugh. I tried to make people laugh all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that, that's, I think that upbringing did help prepare me for it. I, I can kind of see that now, but I, I didn't necessarily see it 20 years ago. <laughs> and it's funny when you say that, because then I, I immediately thought of my dad, because it was very similar. Like he, I remember from a young age, he was very, you know, see where we're at. Are you aware of your surroundings? If something would happen to you, you could escape. You know, he like always right. had this like plan for me. And I remember being like five and thinking, um, can we just go get a toy? <laughs> right. Like, where's but, the ice cream? This is weird. Yeah. But no, I, I think when you said that, I'm like, yeah, I think I, you know, and I, I don't know how I'd react in some sort of situation like that, but I, I, I can see that in my upbringing too. So that's interesting. Um, so let's fast forward to 2008 when you, you had been telling your story for, you know, almost what, seven years, eight years at that time. Hold on. Nine years. Uh, I'm bad 11. at math. 11, 11 years. That's okay. 11 like, years. Yeah. Close. Don't, I'm <laughs> bad at math too, but I got that. So. <laughs> well, it's your story. So you may remember better than me. So you, you started a, a nonprofit, Holly's House. So what is, what is Holly's House about? Um, Holly's House is an adult and child advocacy center. Um, and I had a, a, there's an Evansville police officer named Brian Turpin that came up with the idea for it and he got me on board. So I have to say, I have to give credit to him that he came up with the idea and we're basically the co-founders of Holly's House. Okay. But so an advocacy center, basically it is a place where victims of intimate crimes. So child victims of child neglect, child abuse, Um, and adult victims of sexual assault and domestic violence, where they can go to be interviewed in a one interview location, one interview, um, in a location for one interview. So there's, um, the prosecuting attorney, um, police, uh, if it's a child, child protective services, and they're, it's a one interview process. So they're only interviewed once the story is, you know, stronger because the story doesn't change. They're interviewed once it's recorded and it's done. Um, and it, it leads to better prosecution, okay. more perpetrators are caught. Um, you actually get a lot more, um, perpetrators that actually confess to the crimes because they have such a strong case against them. Um, and so it basically, it gives victims a safe place to be interviewed. And then it also helps give them resources to, to find, you know, therapy or support groups or, you know, whatever kind of help they may need. Holly's house guides them to that help. So we partner with organizations in Evansville that provide that kind of help, mental health help, um, legal advocacy, those kinds of things, shelter, whatever they might need. We partner with those organizations and they actually have offices in Holly's house that they can work um, and and talk to clients at, at Holly's house, or we can send them. We have an amazing support system for victims in Evansville. The piece that was missing was that advocacy center where they can be interviewed in a safe location mm-hmm. and then and then guided to to the resources that are available. That is fantastic. Fantastic. Is now are you just in Evansville at this point? Are you looking to? To spread, or is this something? Well, we are we are located in Evansville, but we serve nine counties around okay. us. Okay. So, um, but I mean, it 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 truly is. I mean, it, it's a model that could be replicated because we actually there's 
several advocacy centers in the United States, and we visited several before Holly's House opened. I think one difference in what Holly's House does is that we do both adults and children. There aren't a lot of advocacy centers that do adults and children, mm-hmm. but child advocacy centers are through are in many, many communities. And, and I think people will be surprised if they look up, is there a child advocacy center in their community, that there actually is one. Okay. Um, it's, it's a very it's, it's a proven way to have, uh, you know, basically put perpetrators behind bars where they belong, um, and, and, and really support the victims and the children, especially because they're such innocent victims that, you know, deserve just our love and our, our care as much as possible. So, um, I think child advocacy centers, you'll, people will be surprised if they, if they Googled a child advocacy center in their community, that there probably is one. And if not, then we need to, then I encourage everybody to figure out how to get one in their community because it is an amazing resource. Great. Great. So you have a book coming out in November and it's called soul survivor. Um, it's available on presale already on Amazon. And what what is so unique about this book is that you've got a lot more to the story that you haven't told. That's right. That I my well, I've always wanted to write a book. That's been like something I've wanted to do probably for at least the past ten years, maybe fifteen years. It was always in my thought process, but I never knew how to do it. I never knew how to start. I needed help, but I didn't find the right person to help me. Like it, it, it was always, and I always had a life experience that was keeping me from it. I was opening Holly's house. I was getting married. I was having children. You know, things that that were keeping me from doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, so it just so happened that while I was, I was recently, I was pregnant with my son, um, last year. And while I was pregnant, I found someone that could be my co-author. I, you know, we did the interview process. We wrote the book and I just somehow, it was the right time to fit it in. And I really think that part of it was, I just wasn't mentally ready because it became, it was a lot of work to write the book. It was, it was a hard, it was hard times. It was hard conversations. It was reliving and retelling and, and, and basic, you know, just a lot of crying and a lot of just healing again. And I think I just wasn't ready to do that work. So that's a lot of work, right? Especially because, you know, books are so detailed and you have to have so many words and descriptions and you're like having to dig deeper than probably you ever anticipated on having to relive it. Yeah, no, I I dug deeper than I've ever dug before, I think, even in any healing that I've ever done, any therapy groups, any survivor, you know, any um any support groups, any survivors groups that I've been a part of. I think I dug deeper and, and, and it's what my author did amazingly is found connections and things that I didn't even realize until she realized it, that, that those things were connected that, you know, maybe I may not have realized that my father was a big part of why I am the way I am. I, I probably know that now because of my book. I know Mm -hmm. that because we delve so deeply into my life and I found connections and things that I didn't, didn't realize before. And so the title of the book, Soul Survivor, obviously you were the sole survivor that night, but what people may not know is that this, your perpetrator was a serial killer. So you were the right. only known survivor to survive an attack from this guy. Right. And, and we know that he killed 15 people. Um, but, but there's several that he was questioned and never, we never knew if he had actually done it. Uh, there could be more. Um, but I, I am the only known survivor. 
And how how was the legal process? How was testifying? I mean, was that just the worst nightmare or was it a sense of of, of closure and healing as well? Well, like I said, I, I stared at him and, and you know, like, so I, I said, I'm going to get you. This was my moment. I was going to get him and mm-hmm. I was ready for it. Like I was, I was, I was happy. I had the chance, but then when the moment actually came and the night before, I literally almost had a breakdown. I literally, I had, I mean, I screamed and cried and didn't think I could do it but somehow found the strength because my parent, luckily my parents and my sister were there with me and they helped me find the strength that I could do it. Um, but I cried through my entire, um, pro- through that entire process. Um, I, you know, they even got to that point in the trial when they say is the person who attacked you in the courtroom today. And I, li- I hadn't been in a courtroom. I had seen them on television. I thought that they don't do that. That's just for television. Right. No, they actually do that. That's <laughs> right. for real. And so I hadn't looked at him yet. Like I was staring at the prosecuting attorney and I, they were like, has the person who attacked you in the courtroom today? And I'm like, I know he's here. This is his trial. So yes, he's here. I didn't, I still wasn't looking at him. Right. And they said, could you please tell us what he's wearing? And I was like, um, you're like, no, and I I'm look, not going to look. At no, him. I know. And so I look over at him. He's got like a smirk on his face. Oh. He's got black eyes, like just no emotion whatsoever. And I'm like, he's wearing a white button down shirt. And at that moment, I literally thought I was going to pass out. Like, I mean, I talk when I talk about the trial as being like a, a second victimization. I mean, it, it was one of the hardest days of my life, almost somewhat harder than more hard than the actual attack. Um, just because it, you know, it, it was so much and so serious. Like, I mean, I, I just, I can't describe it as well as, as it it is, it's in my book. So we'll, we'll, people will be able to read about that. But I, I, right now I can't even come up with the proper words of how hard that trial process was. I can't imagine. I mean, but I am so glad I did it. I am, I am so glad I did it. The the stakes were just so high. I mean, you had to have closure. That guy needed to be, you know, (laughs) well, well, there's a lot of adjectives that could happen (laughs) to him. But I mean, I can't imagine that process. Um, Wow. I am. I'm looking so forward to to getting your book, Um, guys. This is Holly K. Dunn. Fantastic individual. Holly, thank you so much for taking the time today. Um, her book is going, it's available now for pre-sale on Amazon and I will post up the link to her website and to Holly's house. So you guys can check it out. Um, thank you, Holly, for, for taking the time and also for showing us that, um, every day and every hour and every day really matters and, and how we can, you know, use our most traumatic experiences for something to help a lot of people. So you are just incredible. Thank you so much. And thank you that, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. You know, you only have 24 hours and it, you can be do amazing things in those 24 hours. So this it's, it's, um, I really am glad that I I've been able to do this today. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks. Okay, bye. Bye.